0: Looking at design in the context of evolution, and again, as you say, you know, the the where things as, as a whole came from, and the fine tuning of Inu as compatible with life in it, that, that's kind of one discussion. And then we move on to an even more subset, detailed discussion of uh, life and its evolution, its change over time. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind the distinction between the doctrine of creation and different models of creation that different Christians hold because they have different interpretations of scripture and of the relevant scientific evidence. This is back to science and theology are both fallible disciplines trying to put, you know, we're trying to kind of meld those together into what would be called a a synoptic worldview, a a consistent worldview within our spirituality. So Alvin Plantinga frames the issue like this uh, for questions. He says, starting from what's basically the doctrine of creation, we recognise that there are many ways in which God could have created the living things that he has, in fact, created. Starting from an agreement on the doctrine of creation here. How, in fact, did he do it? He's raising the question of what model of creation might be true. Did it all happen just by ways of the workings of the laws of physics which, of course, we would say were created and designed by God. Mm-hmm. Or was there further, adi- like, additional divine activity involved? We, he says, we must look at the evidence and consider the probabilities as best we can. All right. So, our culture is dominated by what we might call the, the grand evolutionary story or the, the grand evolutionary myth. And I, I'm not using myth to mean untrue story, by definition. I'm using myth in the, cl- the classical mythology sense, uh, an overarching story within which we, we position and situate our, our, our spiritualities. So the, this grand evolutionary story, or Darwinism, as we might call it, is not merely a scientific theory, uh, one purporting to explain the origins and diversification of life on earth over millions of years due to natural processes, be those processes created by God or not. Rather, it is a kind of it functions in our culture as a naturalistic creation myth, really. As Philip Johnson observed, Darwinism in this sense is the answer to a specific question that grows out of philosophical naturalism. How must creation have occurred if we assume that God had nothing to do with it? This is back to um, the uh, the atheist philosopher of science that I that I I quoted saying, you know, like methodological naturalism kind of skews the picture of what science is doing, and it's no longer asking the question of what did happen, what's true, it's asking what's the best explanation we can come up with that that fits with a naturalistic worldview. So. Geneticist Richard Lewontin, in his famous quote you may have seen before, said this. He said, it's not that the methods of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world. But on the contrary, that we are forced by our adherence to material causes. That is, we're forced by our philosophy that we bring to doing the science. To create a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, says Lawontin, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The grand evolutionary story has many different elements to it. Now, the ancient Earth hypothesis says that the earth is about 4.54 billion years old. The progress thesis says that living things gradually increased in complexity over time. So you start with single-celled organisms uh, and eventually you end up with multicellular organisms and you get mammals and marsupials and things later on in history. The common ancestry hypothesis says that contemporary organisms, things that exist today, are all descended from simpler ancestral organisms. The universal common ancestry hypothesis says that all living things are descended from one original, one original primordial organism. Darwin himself was kind of agnostic about whether universal common ancestry was true or not he said you know it evolved from one or a few few different basic forms of life what i call the darwinian or blind watchmaker evolutionary hypothesis is the idea that evolution this change over time happens through natural processes requiring no divine or other non-material or goal-directed teleological guidance. This, philosoph- notice, philosophical thesis motivates the scientific theory that variation and natural selection, and perhaps other similarly undirected mechanisms, are sufficient to explain the acknowledged appearance of design in biology. And what's called the, the neo-Darwinist, or modern evolutionary synthesis, combined Darwin's theory of descent with modification through natural selection with the science of genetics. Darwin didn't know anything about genetics when he put his theories, theories forward. And that was kind of Mendel's work on genetics, and was rediscovered later. Um, but in the early part of the 20th century, we put together our knowledge of genetics with Darwin in theory to produce the neo-Darwinian or modern evolutionary synthesis. Now today there's a discussion about the, the modern or extended evolutionary synthesis. There are, there's a debate between adherents of the, the, the kind of standard modern synthesis and advocates of a so-called extended evolutionary synthesis who advocate the need for one or more additional explanations of at least bits of evolutionary history although still framed through this common philosophical view of an unguided, unplanned process of physical chance and or necessity. So there are actually many scientists today who say that in terms of being a sufficient complete explanation of the data, neo-Darwinism is false. It explains some things, but not enough and there's other competing explanations <coughs> of what you need to add. They say, yeah, neo-Darwinism does some stuff. Genetic variation and natural selection explains some things, but it doesn't explain the origination of, say, new completely new different forms of animal body plan in the history of life. And they want to supplement the, the standard theory with additional unplanned unintentional processes. And then we have the naturalistic origins hypothesis that says life arose from non-life by an unplanned and unguided physical process. Now, I've arranged these, introduced these uh, to you in what I and some other scholars would consider an order of most to least probable. As we work our way down this list, I've become increasingly skeptical. So I've described these in what many, but by no means all, scholars would consider a descending order of plausibility. Uh, So Plantinga again says, there's excellent evidence for an ancient earth. There's less evidence, but still good evidence in the fossil record for the progress thesis. Uh, And he says, the naturalistic origins thesis seems to me to be, for the most part, mere arrogant bluster. Given our present state of knowledge, I believe it's vastly less probable on the present evidence than its denial. As Christopher Rees says in his introduction to um, Four Views on Christianity and Science, uh, Three Views on Christianity and Science, he says, now we must be cautious about equating our interpretations of Scripture with Scripture itself Mm -hmm. and our interpretations of nature with nature as it truly is. Thus, when we encounter apparent contradictions between the two, we should strive to ensure that we're understanding and interpreting each accurately. In some cases, we may need to revisit our understanding of scripture, and in other cases, we may need to verify that we're grasping the facts about the natural world accurately, and interpreting those facts properly. So remember when I talked about that the conflict thesis was the idea that whenever there was an apparent conflict between science and theology, science was wrong, and science, uh, uh, theology was wrong, and science was right. Yeah. Rhys is is pointing out that because both science and theology are, are fallible, it's more complicated than that. In some instances of apparent conflict assuming there isn't any genuine conflict there's an apparent conflict it may be that the science is right and our theology is wrong. But that doesn't mean like the Bible is wrong, it means our interpretation, our theology right, is wrong. But it also may be that our science is wrong. And so we have this kind of hermeneutical interplay, hermeneutical spiral with those in the um, you know, preaching and the theology networks, would no doubt have talked about. Philosophers Michael J. Murray and Michael Rear uh, say this. They say, for the religious believer, the conflicts between science and religion, or apparent conflicts between science and religion, will involve balancing evidence against evidence. The empirical evidence favoring scientific claims against the revelatory evidence, and the evidence that we've interpreted properly, I would say, favoring theological claims. See, they're they're not saying, you know, there's science, and that's rational, and there's theology, and that's all about faith and just believing stuff. Uh, uh, They're saying both of these disciplines involve rational argument. And so when there's an apparent conflict, what you have to do is balance evidences against each other. He says They say the Christian critic of evolution might conclude that the evidence for an ancient earth seems quite strong, while the evidence for the naturalistic origin of life is in fact virtually non-existent. This then needs to be balanced against the evidence of revelation. How clear is it that the Bible teaches that the earth is young? for example, or that God directly intervened in the cosmos to bring about life. And there'll be an interplay, and balancing of this evidence against evidence as we try and make sense of a picture of reality that coherently puts together what we think we know from everywhere we think we know it from, as it were. Uh, So it is certainly not a case of, oh, there's an apparent conflict between theology and science, so science is going to win and we have to change our theology. It can be rational to change what you think the science interpretation should be because of what you think the theology interpretation should be. But theology no more gets to play a trump card over science than science gets to play a trump card over theology. We just have to do our best to balance up the scales. So there is room, there is certainly room for doubting our models of creation. Philosopher J.P. Morland says there are sufficient problems in interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 to warrant caution in dogmatically holding that only one understanding is allowable by the text. And, and using that as a kind of trump card against a, uh, a scientific interpretation of the world. Or well, Theologian David Winter says the phrase the Bible says begs a lot of questions. What Does the bible say to whom is it saying it what's the context background literary form of the passage in question is it to be taken literally or figuratively or allegorically and so on those discussions need to be had in in an open and uh, hopefully fruitful manner but there is also room for doubting darwinism The grand evolutionary story contains, as we've seen, philosophical commitments that derive from a naturalistic worldview and we should be aware of that. These philosophical commitments can be replaced with other philosophical commitments interpreting the same scientific data within a different worldview. So a theist might very well say that Life arose from non-life by a guided physical process. Or, they might say, life arose from non-life by an unguided physical process that was intended by God. The preconditions of which and the laws which it followed insofar as it was following any natural laws were created by God with the intention that it would do stuff. And, and a God who kept it in existence moment by moment as it did that stuff. All right? Those are two you know, different ways of theologically interpreting the same scientific data against a different philosophical worldview. It is possible to interpret the evolutionary story philosophically and the biblical story theologically so that they contradict each other. And it is possible to use this contradiction to argue against either the truth of evolution or the infallibility of scripture, right? You get that argument being run in in both ways by both sides, uh, both bookends of the, the cultural conversation on this today. But it is also, I think, possible at least to interpret the evolutionary story philosophically and the biblical story theologically in ways that make them compatible. Maybe There are a number of different ways of of doing that. Um, Maybe you have an opinion on what the most plausible way of doing that is. Maybe you don't. Why would you need one? (laughs) The main thing, after all, is the doctrine of creation. So it's possible I think to doubt at least some elements of the grand evolutionary story without doubting every element. It's not a take it or leave it proposition as we've seen. Now the question, do you believe in evolution? It's too broad stroke a question. They say, well what do you you mean by that? (laughs) Such doubts can be rationally motivated by theological philosophical and or scientific reasons for example some atheists deny universal common ancestry whilst still accepting common ancestry on scientific grounds so universal common ancestry says there was one original life form that emerged from non-life, and everything else has evolved from that one creature. Common ancestry says all the life forms that are alive now are descended from simpler common ancestors, but maybe those trace back to three different original kinds of life, or not just one ancestor but a kind of population of ancestors that were swapping genes hither and tither amongst themselves and you can't really go back to, you can go back to a population but not to an individual organism. There's so different ways of cashing out these relationships. Again, many atheists deny the sufficiency, the sufficiency of the modern evolutionary synthesis, that is neo-Darwinism, on scientific grounds without denying the blind watchmaker thesis. So here's atheist philosopher Jerry Fodor saying phylogeny that amounts to common descent could be true even if adaptationism, Darwin's theory of evolution, isn't. The classical Darwinist account of evolution is on trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. An appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists Footnote. No. Non religious ones, yeah, not Christians, <laughs> right? Perfectly reasonable bi- secular biologists are coming to think that the theory of natural selection, the kind of neo Darwinist picture there, can no longer be taken for granted. Or atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel uh, caused quite a stir with his book Mind and Cosmos a few years ago. Fascinating subtitle here for an atheist writer in our culture. He says, mind the cosmos, why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. But he's still writing from the viewpoint of an atheist, but he's taking issue with our materialistic worldview. He says, the dominant scientific consensus faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead, non-living matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. Before you can have evolution, you have to have something able to evolve. That means something able to differentially pass along information to replicate itself, to make mistakes in that replication. You've got to have a lot. You can't explain that by saying it evolved by the method that things evolved from it. and That's a, that's a given. Uh, he says, the more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code, he's pointing to co- information specified complexity in our code, in our genes, and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem.